Teresa Reimer is going to tell a story about, Teresa's a nurse, which is probably the noblest of all professions, and uh, had an opportunity to do some fun things recently. Let's give it up for Teresa. I want to start by uh, mentioning that the Nobel Peace Prizes were recently awarded, and one of the recipients was Dr. Dennis Mukwege from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I just wanted to share a little bit about what he has meant in my life. And uh, so I, when I was getting my master's degree in nursing, I was uh, doing a project on sexual violence in the eastern region of the DR Congo. And I was uh, just immersed in horrific stories of extreme violence and suffering and uh, just uh, in an area that has been uh, afflicted with ongoing conflict for decades now, uh, the stories were just crushing. Um, uh, I learned about Dr. Mukwege's work because he is a surgeon in, the, in this region and he has been uh, repairing the bodies of women who have been affected by extreme rape and also um, fistulas from childbirth and such. Um, and so he's been working with women who have uh, traditionally been like ousted by their community or rejected by their families. Um, and he has been um, working not just to physically heal them, but to address their uh, emotional and spiritual needs and um, help them to reintegrate into their society. He's also been quite the advocate for these women um, and for working for peace in this region of the Congo. Um, so uh, it made me think of what uh, Mr. Rogers used to always say was when there's a disaster, when you're feeling hopeless about um, a situation, look to the helpers. There's always helpers. There's always people in the midst of the suffering um, who are doing good and let them be an encouragement to you. So recently I got to travel to Kenya. I was in a rural area of Kenya working in an orphanage, um, just doing basic health assessments and trying to um, help this little orphanage um, to take even better care of their children. And uh, as you can imagine, it was another time where I heard heartbreaking stories. You know, no one ends up in an orphanage from happy circumstances. One story that I heard uh, a middle school girl took me aside and said, I want to tell you my story. And she told me about her dad dying and a few years later her mom passing away. And then she paused and she said, and now I've been found to be with HIV. And she just broke down and sobbed. And as I stood there not knowing exactly what to do, um, her friend came, like, must have, uh, you know, been able to, was on her radar. She knew her friend was suffering. She ran up. She put her arm around her and just held her while she sobbed. And throughout my time at that orphanage, that's what I saw. The kids taking care of each other, providing comfort and um, consoling each other in a way that only someone who has been through similar circumstance can do. Uh, so it was another situation where I just got to witness the helpers rising up in the midst of extreme suffering. And my, uh, I think sometimes our, our inclination when we, we hear about suffering in the world is, oh, I got to go save the day. What should we do to you know, help those poor suffering people? And the helpers are already there, and the, the, um, they already know what's needed, and they just need support. They need a boost. They need the, uh, the financial and um, you know, emotional encouragement from us. 
so the orphanage that I, I was working with, they have a sponsorship program, and so I, um, I'm able to stay in touch with these kids and encourage them and uh, write them letters and identify needs that they have. And it's, you know, these are just two small examples of um, just the amazing work that's being done and the opportunities for us to get involved. Thank you, Teresa. It's been fun to just know her for the last 10 years or so and to watch all of this developing in her life and the heart that she has for, um, especially for women's health. So the, she, she works at a skin, uh, this is like way off the subject, but at a dermatology office. So whenever I see Teresa, I'm always like, tell me your grossest stories and they're amazing. So if you like gross stories, uh, Teresa's the one for you. But I, I like the point that you were, you were talking about, and that's just finding hope and joy and encouragement in the midst of suffering and hard times. And that's essentially the content of what we're going to be talking about um, this morning. Before I get into it, I, I want to mention something that's, that's happening, just a brief mention. Rabbi Josh, who's the rabbi over there at Temple Beth Emmet, he's going to be leading a caravan of interfaith people, so people from all sorts of faith communities, um, down to one of the immigration camps in Texas starting November 14th, ending in El Paso on the 16th. Um, so if anybody has any interest in driving down there with them or meeting up with them later, let me know and I'll get you details. I've got a little post-concussion thing. I can't drive, so I might fly to El Paso for a night or two. So if you're interested in joining me for that, let me know and we'll see what we can do to support them. Um, Man, I don't want. Like, I feel like we're just like starting with like all this heavy stuff. Like, oh man, immigration camps and AIDS. Um, how was the Michigan game last night? <laughs> they won, right? And state won too, right? Man, I just like on top of everything going on in the world. Um, here in the last couple of weeks, I actually I actually had another little personal thing going on, and that was. I had to have a little small lump, like a pea-sized lump in my body biopsied a week and a half ago. Nothing to worry about, I'm totally fine. Uh, just a common little benign lump. But even though I knew at the time of the biopsy that the chances of it being something scary were extremely minimal, you know, I was still anxious about it. And maybe you guys do this too, but one of the ways that I deal with anxiety is I, um, I try and deal with it with humor. So like when I came home from my biopsy, Rachel was like, well, how did it go? And I was like, you know, fine, but in a weird way, it was kind of fun. And she's like, well, what do you mean by fun? And I was like, well, I, I made the doctor and the nurses laugh through the whole thing. And I was making like just really macabre jokes. And most of them I can't say in this context, but I'm going to share a couple. Yeah, Ken's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Things like, uh, so what do you guys use for this procedure? Like an apple core? <laughs> the nurse was like, no. <laughs> or... What if I ate my twin in utero? Like, do you guys think I did that? Do you think that lump could be my twin? Like, when you go in, are you going to find teeth and hair and stuff? And again, it's like, oh, that would go on, like, the weird special cases board. <laughs> but at the end of it, the doctor, I was like, she goes, man, thanks for being such a fun patient. It's just, it's helpful in these contexts. And I said, you know, thanks for laughing at my terrible jokes. And I knew I was being a little bit over the top, but I also knew that if I didn't make light of the situation, that I was just going to be too anxious to function, right? So sometimes we use um, humor and joy in order to function and cope with the weight of anxiety. And my guess is that many of us are feeling highly anxious in general right now. 
just given the barrage of news and the tensions that we're feeling in some of our personal relationships. Um, I know from some of you that this is the case. I told Lisa Carrico I'm going to give her a little bit of props, I'll say. I saw on Facebook this week that she put up her Christmas tree this week just to like find a little bit of joy. And I thought, good for you for doing that. I don't think Rachel would let me. (laughs) So the last couple of weeks we've been talking about how following Jesus, you know, it means that we stand with people who are treated with less dignity in our culture. And that we have a resistance, a theology of resistance to the powers of oppression right, that we resist white supremacy and misogyny and homophobia and the like, and that we actively resist policies that are harming immigrants and the poor and other vulnerable people. And we've talked about how being an ally to the less powerful is part of what it means to be human in the Judeo-Christian tradition, and that God is on the side of the marginalized. But as important as all of this is, we also have to ensure that we don't get overwhelmed by it. And I think that we can find some helpful guidance from our spiritual tradition on how to care for our emotional and our mental health in the midst of everything. Because frankly, I don't think it's going to get better in the short term. And I think that we need to tend to ourselves and we need to pace ourselves so that we can, as the Apostle Paul says, run the race set out for us. And almost our entire scriptural tradition is written from the vantage point of people who have experienced social tension, marginalization, war, exile. And at various times in the history of the Jewish people, they wrote down how it was that they coped with their grief and with their fears. And so one of the texts that we're going to be looking at today is coming from one of those writings in the book of Nehemiah. So let me just start as we get into Nehemiah here, by painting the context of this book through story. So I'm going to start a little like Star Wars here. A long time ago, in a faraway place, the people of God established a nation. And it was a nation of great kings, and it was a nation of legendary queens, and it was a nation of abundance had good food and good wine, and it was a nation that valued caring for the vulnerable. But there came a time when corrupt rulers came to power. And these corrupt rulers taxed the poorest people until they could hardly afford to eat. And they were unkind to the foreigners who came to live in their land, and they killed innocent people, and they took advantage of unmarried women and of children. And so God sent his prophets to these corrupt rulers And prophets are simply people who are good at reading the signs of the times. Prophets are able to see what's really happening under the official storylines and rhetoric and predicting sort of the outcome, predicting the behavior and the policies where these things will go in the long run. And so prophets make these predictions so that we can choose to either go there or to change our direction, to change course. And so God sent these prophets to these corrupt rulers who predicted what would happen if the corrupt leaders continued in their corrupt ways. And the book of Jeremiah records one of these prophets, Jeremiah himself, and he's speaking to one of these corrupt kings named Jehoiakim. And so this is from chapter 22. I'm just going to read what it is that Jeremiah is saying about Jehoiakim. And he's saying it like from the voice of God. So Jeremiah says, the Lord says, how terrible it will be for King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. He builds his palace by mistreating his people. He builds its upstairs rooms with money gained by sinning. 
He makes his own people work for nothing. He does not pay them for what they do. And he says, I will build myself a great palace, a tremendous palace, the best palace. And it will have large rooms upstairs. And so he makes big windows in it and he covers its walls with cedar board and he decorates it with red paint. Jehoiakim, does having more cedar boards make you a king? Your father, Josiah, had enough to eat and drink. He did what was fair and right, so everything went well with him. He stood up for those who were poor or needy, so everything went well with him. That is what it means to know me, announces the Lord. I'm going to repeat that part. He stood up for those who were poor or needy, so everything went well with him. That's what it means to know me, announces the Lord. Jehoiakim, the only thing on your mind is to get rich by cheating others. You would even kill people who are not guilty of doing anything wrong. You would mistreat them. You would take everything they own. And then the prophet Jeremiah, he goes on to talk about how when leaders treat people poorly, things start to unravel. And Jeremiah predicts that the current course of corruption is going to lead to bad things. And he says, you know, your neighboring kingdom, Babylon, is pretty strong. And they're going to be able to come in and they're going to be able to conquer such a weakened land, which is exactly what happens. So a long time ago, in this faraway place, the people of God were defeated and they were carried off to live as refugees in a foreign land. And they lived there for 70 years. And at the end of those 70 years, the ruler of Babylon agreed to let the people go back to their homeland to rebuild their home and their city and their temple. And so a long time ago, in this faraway place, the people of God came back to their land after many, many long years of suffering. And the men who led them back into their land, and I'm sure some unnamed women as well, but the men were Nehemiah and Ezra. And Nehemiah was gifted at governance, and Ezra was a priest. Ezra was the spiritual leader. And so together, those two men sought to help all of the people heal. But the people were anxious, and the people were deeply sad. And so they gathered together, and they were here to listen Ezra the priest read out loud from the Hebrew scriptures. Right? It's kind of like they went to church to get some comfort, only these are our Jewish siblings, so it was more like they went to temple to get some comfort. And as they read together aloud the books of Moses, the people were crying. And it just says they wept, and they wept, and they wept. And they wept because they realized how much they had suffered due to the corruption and the bad governance of all the generations before them. Right? That they suffered because their forebears forgot to love their neighbors and to treat all humans with dignity. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I can relate to their feelings right now. And sometimes I want to cry, and sometimes I do, right? It kind of feels like we're early on in this sort of disaster in the making. But in that moment, Ezra and Nehemiah, they got up, and what they said to the people was this. They said, don't mourn or weep. Go, enjoy choice foods and sweet drinks, and send some to those who haven't prepared any. Because this day is sacred to God. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Have you guys heard that? That's where that comes from. Do you guys know that old song? The joy of the Lord is my... It's hard to sing, but... <laughs> the joy of the Lord is my strength. 
So all the people, they went away, and they went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food to people who didn't have them and to celebrate with joy. And then the next day, the people gathered again to read the scriptures. And they found this text in the law of Moses where God commanded the people to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. This is what's called the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish tradition, or the Feast of Booths. And so the people gathered together all kinds of sticks and palm branches, and they made these um, kind of booths slash tents to camp out in, and to feast in, and to have parties and celebrate, right? It would be like renting out a giant campground for all of your friends and coming and just having a grand old time together. So if you guys noticed on the way in, right outside our our front door here, I actually thought it would be gone this week. I was thrilled that it wasn't. That wooden lattice thing out there is the booth that's put up every year by the Jewish congregation that we share our building with. And they put it up every year to remember and celebrate this same feast that Nehemiah is talking about and describing so that we can remember that during times of suffering, we are commanded to take time out to enjoy life. Right? We are commanded to take time out and enjoy life and to savor our friends and our family and to put aside the grieving and the weeping and the mourning to eat and drink and be merry with each other. And it was only after the people had partied for an entire week together that then they reconvened to grieve the sins of their ancestors. Right? There's a time for that. There is a time to grieve and move forward. But if we just sit in grief all of the time, it will crush us, right? If we just sit in grief, just pickling in it all of the time, it will crush us. So there's a time for grief and a time for active resistance and there's a time for joy and there's a time for rest. And we should be completely unapologetic about making room for those latter things in our lives for joy and rest. And of course, we don't want to sequester ourselves away from people who disagree with us, from people who are not like us, but there is a time to gather with like-minded people in order to refresh ourselves, right? To hang out with people who we know are safe for us, with whom we can be fully ourselves, we can let down our guard, let off some steam, and just celebrate with abandon. Or if it's more your style, if maybe you're a little more introverted, celebrate by having a PJ party with a warm fire and hot cider, <laughs> funny movies. You know, there's something, I think I talked about it last year, you know, like where the, the Norwegians call it kuselig. It's this idea of getting cozy in the winter time. You know, like where you just have soft blankets and good food and hot drinks and just this idea of making warm, cozy, safe spaces. You could also put up your Christmas tree before Halloween, if that makes you happy. (laughs) Right? So we can cultivate these spaces for joy and rest in our lives, and we can do it as a spiritual discipline. Right? That this is actually a spiritual discipline, cultivating these spaces for joy and rest, that we're deliberate about it, and that it's okay to spend time and even resources being deliberate in it. So you guys know what money is good for? I mean, we all know what money's good for. It's for taking care of your needs. It's good for giving generously to others. And it's great for building relationships. I never apologize for using money to build relationships. And I think from a spiritual perspective, these are the most life-giving uses for money, right? You got to take care of your own needs. Don't neglect yourself and your family. 
give generously to other people. Not only just to help those around us, but giving away money helps us develop a lack of attachment to money and to things. That's why it's part of almost every spiritual tradition. Give generously and then spend money on relationships. Spend money on that roast lamb and have 10 people over for a feast if that brings you life. You know, most of us here don't have unlimited amounts of money. I know Rach and I don't. And I think that in our culture, because it's such a consumer culture, we often hear admonishments not to spend so much money on things. And that's helpful, right? Because we do have that habit. But I think less often do we hear encouragement to spend money, like do spend money on relationship building experiences. And include friends who don't have money so that they also can benefit from these relationship building experiences. Now, there's this age-old practice in the Christian tradition called the love feast. Have you guys ever heard of the love feast, any of you? I think a couple people. So the earliest Jesus followers, they sometimes called communion a love feast. Because oftentimes when they were taking communion together, they were actually eating an entire meal. But by the third century or so, the, the love feast sort of became its own thing. And it's still celebrated in some denominations. That's why I think we saw a few nods. I think the pacifist traditions, like the brethren, celebrate it. Um, many of the people in the Methodist tradition. And then some of the black church denominations, like the African Methodist Episcopals, the AME um, churches, celebrate it. So I've been part of a love feast once. And it sounds like a totally hokey thing. Just stay with me, because it was actually really, really great. I studied in Israel for a few months about a decade ago. I can't believe it was that long ago. And I was part of something called a discipleship training school. Right? It sounds like so Christian. But it was really great. It was about 20 young people. And we spent a few months just studying the Bible together, traveling around Israel and Palestine, and just learning about some of the prayer and um, various Christian disciplines. And so one of the things that we learned about was the love feast. And so there were these two brothers from Norway, Eivind and Frederick. And it turns out that these two, they're really great, but it turns out they were well-known Christian rappers in their home country, right? Like, I know, I know, like Norwegian Christian rappers, so cool. <laughs> but these brothers were entertainers and they were hilarious. So they emceed the entire night and they made all kinds of jokes and they put together skits and they made us laugh. And I led the cooking team mainly because I was 29 and I was the oldest and nobody else even knew how to cook, right? So we prepared a big roast lamb and all kinds of beautiful food and then some people led some songs and some people decorated the hall and it was basically like throwing a big feast for ourselves to have a great big fun time to just enjoy each other. And then, this is probably the hokiest part of all, we dressed up like Bible characters. <laughs> and I went as Jael, who is a lesser known woman in the Bible. In the book of Judges, Jael is a woman who drives a giant tent stake through the head of an evil man. So I had a tent stake and a giant hammer. <laughs> I don't think I could make a great sermon out of that story. I've thought about it. But you know, I wasn't gonna go as one of those nicey-nicey characters like Ruth or Esther, I mean, that's fine. But I mean, Jael drove a freaking tent stake through somebody's head. <laughs> if you need a Halloween costume, Jael. Right, so this, this love feast that I thought would be hokey is actually one of my best memories. 
And so I'm, I've actually been kind of thinking about would we be able to do one here, but I don't want to promise anything because I think it's a lot of work, but we'll see. But I want to encourage you guys to at least embrace the spirit of the love feast, right? To have many versions in your home if you have space for that. And if you're more introverted, you can keep it small, right? Just some dinners with some dear friends. You can have dessert, drinks. And I think the hardest part for most of us is just finding the time, isn't it? Especially if you've got kids that are in school and you've got to get them and run them around to different things. But I want to encourage you that it is important, I think, for our spiritual and emotional health to actually make deliberate space. Even if it's like once a month, we're going to have another family over that our family loves and just have dinner. And to seek what brings you joy and to spend time doing those things, a hobby, whatever it is. Because in the biblical tradition, joy and praise are acts of resistance in and of themselves. Right? Joy and praise are acts of resistance. They're a way of declaring that God is good, even in the midst of suffering. It's a way of declaring that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that when we take time out for this kind of joy, and when we take time for rest and recovery, and we make space to set aside our stress and our mourning, what that's doing is helping us develop skills for the long haul. Because corrupt leaders will always exist. And the time in which we live might get worse before it gets better. So we have to care for ourselves. I'm just going to read this verse from Romans 12, 9 to 13. Paul writes, Love must be honest and true. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Love one another deeply. Honor others more than yourselves. Stay excited about your faith as you serve the Lord. When you hope, be joyful. When you suffer, be patient. When you pray, be faithful. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and welcome others into your homes. I think that is great advice for us as well as to the letter to the, to the Christians in Rome. All right, we're going to move into a time of meditation. So at Blue Ocean, we often take two or three minutes for just silence or for guided meditation. And I'd like to do a guided meditation today. So just get comfortable. Take a couple deep breaths. And I'll have you start by just picturing yourself in a space that brings you joy or that feels restful to you. And just spend a little bit of time taking in that space and relaxing. Now imagine a bowl in front of you. And as you think about different things that have been bringing you grief or stress or anxiety, just imagine pulling those out of your head or out of your heart and just placing them into that bowl.
You just look into that bowl and just see all of those swirling emotions and thoughts. Just observe it, pick up the bowl, and just set it aside. Now imagine that Jesus is sitting across from you. And he's just there. And just just notice his presence and just be there for a moment. And now imagine a few people who bring you real rest and joy. Like the people who really make you happy just sitting around with you, maybe sitting in a circle. Imagine that Jesus comes over to you, kneels down in front of you, and just takes your hands. In that space, I'm just going to pray this into this space here as Jesus is near to us. And Jesus, I ask that your spirit would just infuse us and that your spirit of love and of peace and of joy would cause some renewal inside of us. That you would fill us and refill us in those spaces that have been feeling anxious, inside those places that are grieving. And I pray, Lord, that you give us perseverance to resist the powers that harm us and others, that you also give us rest, that you help us to make time um, to be alone and time to pray. I ask that you would infuse us with joy so that we would laugh often and laugh loudly, and that you would help us to make space for joy to thrive in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And that while we resist the forces that bring suffering, Lord, that you would surround us with people who love us and that you would surround us with allies and that you would help us not to sequester ourselves away from people with whom we disagree, but that you would give us some freedom to spend time with people who refresh us and who bring us peace. Lord, we ask that we could feast in your name May we eat and drink and be merry. May we party with the people of God, with the people of light, and with the people of love. Help us to remember that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel, that you are the Lord of this storm, and in fact, you are the Lord over this storm. Rulers come and rulers go, but you remain. O God, love remains, and may our lives bear witness to this truth that love remains and love wins. Amen. May the joy of the Lord be our strength.